This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, come warm yourself by the fire. You are among friends. Uh, Dr. Jim Gutman is standing by uh, to talk about what has been described as the mother of all antioxidants, the master detoxifier and the maestro of the immune system, glutathione. Uh, We'll delve into that momentarily. Uh, Ian Robertson is here with us on the other side of the glass, twisting the knobs and the dials. Uh, Easy. This is a family show. (laughs) Uh, Albert Vinzel is here, my hardworking story producer, and he's also running our HOA, Hangout On Air. Uh, So if you want to stream the show live on YouTube, just go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett. S-Y, because I love you, R-E-T-T, at Richard Serrett. And while you're there, say hello and follow. So go to the top of the Twitter feed and uh, the, um, or near the top. It might be one or two down. And you'll find the tweet there with the HOA link in it. And just click on it and you are inside the inner sanctum. And you can see me here in studio and occasionally our guests join us as well um, on, on webcam. Uh, Get on up to the website. The landing page is strangeplanet.ca. And from there, you can go to the radio section. That's the conspiracy show. And you'll find a slide carousel up at the top. And that's uh, where you'll find a a collection of fascinating tidbits and stories. There's a riveting piece there this week from Salon.com. It's an interview with John Rizzo. Who is John Rizzo? Well, he is the top lawyer or was, with the Central Intelligence Agency. And he has a sit-down with a, um, a contributor to Salon over drinks. And some hidden truths emerge over a, a bottle or two of Pinot, uh, Pinot Noir. So you'll definitely want to check that out. Uh, there's also a great article from realitieswatch.com. And... It's about a company, you may, it's, it's a huge, enormous company, one of the largest companies on earth, and you may not have even have heard of it. Uh, it's called Serco. And uh, its tentacles are everywhere. 
So you'll all you'll want to find out about Serco. Uh, again, that's in the slide carousel. Just a couple of the stories Albert and I have posted. Go to strangeplanet.ca and then on to the radio page for The Conspiracy Show. Uh, just a reminder uh, that I am presenting a special, exclusive uh, live event Sunday, April 17th at the University of Toronto. That's the J.R.R. McLeod Auditorium. And it's called The Bilderbergs, featuring Pulitzer Prize nominee Daniel Estulin, the author of The True Story of the Bilderbergs, and he'll be presenting the Canadian theatrical premiere of his new documentary film, Bilderberg the Movie, and he'll also uh, be giving a special 90-minute presentation. And again, that's Sunday, April the 17th, The Bilderbergs. For more details or to order tickets online, go to the live events page at strangeplanet.ca. You can also buy them in store at Conspiracy Culture, 1344 Bloor Street West, or by phone, 416-916-1696, or on their live events page, that's Patrick and Kadena at Conspiracy Culture at conspiracyculture.com. Conspiracyculture.com. All right. It's arguably the most important molecule you'll need to stay healthy and prevent disease, yet you've probably never heard of it. It might just hold the secret to preventing aging, cancer, heart disease, dementia, and more. Maybe. Possibly. Jimmy Gutman, MD, is a former professor at McGill University Medical School, where his original specialty was emergency medicine. He now practices family medicine. He was trained at the University of Calgary and did his emergency medicine residency at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, where he was chief resident. Excuse me. He went on to an accomplished career here in Canada, where he was appointed as the undergraduate director and residency training director of emergency medicine at McGill University. He's been an organizer and speaker at multiple national and international medical conferences and has literally contributed to the training of thousands of doctors and students. Dr. Gutman has sat on the board of directors for the Canadian Association of Emergency Medicine, various other boards dealing with policy and education, an expert on glutathione and the author of several best-selling books on the topic. He's dedicated to seeing the gap bridged between traditional and complementary medicine. He's appeared numerous times on television and radio discussing the role of glutathione in health and disease. He's currently the senior medical consultant at Immunutech Incorporated. Dr. Gutman, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm very, very good. Thank you for having me on your show, Richard. My pleasure. That is quite a resume. Uh, And the thing that jumps out immediately to me is you are steeped in orthodox medicine. Uh, I mean, you know, emergency medical uh, practice, uh, chief residents. And yet here you are speaking about something that I would venture, if you went into most GP's office, uh, into your GP office and asked them about glutathione, they might might be familiar with the, the, the molecule, but not much more than a passing familiarity. Is that a, an apt description? You're quite right. Um, I think the vast majority of them, in fact, would not have a clue <laughs> what, what glutathione is about. But um, as most of your listeners, uh, although you may not have heard of glutathione until this evening, um, I pretty much guarantee that uh, in 
the next five or ten years, everybody will be speaking about glutathione, using the word glutathione as commonly as they use a word like antioxidant or cholesterol, because there's, um, as of today, probably 125,000 articles uh, written on it, uh, all in the public domain. So you will be seeing more and more of, of this word, and uh, it's uh, it's so important. It's that important that um, I've given up my regular medical career just to pursue this tiny little molecule. Tiny little molecule that occurs naturally in not just the human uh, body. Is this is this present in in most mammals? Well, you've been doing your work, um, Richard. Um, good for you. Not just humans. Not just mammals. Um, probably birds, uh, even insects. Um, it is just such an essential part of of a living cell that um, it would be hard to find a living organism that did not have glutathione uh, functioning as its uh, inherent antioxidant. So I was I was reading this piece. I, I think it was in the Huffington Post, and the the author described it as the mother of all antioxidants, the master detoxifier, and the maestro of the immune system. Very poetic. Uh, <laughs> so uh, let's start with, well, you give me a description of, of this molecule. What is it made up of? Where is it found in the human body? And then we'll get into what it does. It's uh, a small little protein. Um, in fact, almost too small to be called a protein. We call these small proteins peptides. And it's made up of three little amino acids. The two of the amino acids are really easy to get from your diet. I mean, if you and I were even going to go over to uh, Timmy's tonight and have a, have a donut, we'd, we'd get a lot of those two, anti, uh, two amino acids. But the amino acid that's very, very difficult to get uh, in an absorbable form is something called cysteine. And when you get cysteine in a bioavailable form, then your cells can make this molecule called glutathione. And every single one of your cells make glutathione because, as you um, so poetically pointed out, um, master antioxidant, that's quite clear, uh, maestro of the immune function. And what was the other cool M word that you used? Uh, uh, let's see, what was that? Again, this was from the Huffington Post, I believe. Right. Uh, and that and was... It definitely had to do with detoxification. Yeah, the mother of antioxidants, the master detoxifier, and the maestro of the immune system. <laughs> I, I love it. But, you know, when you hear something like that, it, it um, for the, the scientist or the the, the, the researcher, the, the doctor, um, it starts to sound uh, kind of puffed up. But in fact, if you were to look at, it, at its role as an antioxidant, it's quite accurate to call it the master antioxidant. Because, I mean, by now, uh, most of your listeners have heard of antioxidants. They've heard of things like vitamin C and vitamin E and probably a whole bunch of other um, um, stranger, more wonderful antioxidants. The, the key here, Richard, is that none of the antioxidants that we know of in science now can work without the presence of glutathione. Glutathione recycles all the antioxidants, recharges them. If you don't have glutathione in your system, then 
um, taking your vitamin pill it just uh, is, is a waste of time. You need glutathione for these other antioxidants to work. Dr. Jim Gutman is uh, with us, and we are talking about uh, glutathione. Now, where is the where in the human body is the glutathione plant, the factory that's that's producing it? This is a, a great question. Um, um, first, I'll I'll, uh, I'll have to tell you that pretty much all of your cells are making glutathione, but some tissues more than other. The highest levels of glutathione to be found in your body. Um, the place where it's most actively produced is in your liver. And that goes back to one of those M words you were talking about. It, it is the master uh, antioxidant, but it's also the most important detoxification substance you have in your body next to, next to water. So, of course, your liver is your major organ of detoxification, so it's no wonder that the majority of glutathione is being made there. And, and um, how... Is the production of glutathione in the body, in the liver, and uh, in other cells, how is that regulated? I mean, what determines how much glutathione you, your body produces or doesn't produce? That, that our bodies are, are extremely clever. Um, if you were to talk about the way we're made teolo- teleologically, um, you, you have an innate sense that's uh, either given to you by God, if you believe in God, or given to you by selection, if you believe in Darwin. But you can't beat the, the inherent knowledge of an individual cell who is going to produce its optimal amount of glutathione and no more. So it's not like you can push a cell to make higher levels of glutathione. Your cell will make as much as it can to a certain ceiling, and then it shuts down. So really, what limits the cell to make glutathione is that little amino acid we were talking about before called cysteine. As long as we provide um, uh, a biologically active form of cysteine, your body is going to make glutathione. But much, and that sounds easy, but it, it ain't that easy. All right, and we'll... we'll... Dr. Gutman, we'll pick that up on the other side. Uh, What perhaps might hamper the production of this master antioxidant and immune booster? A simple molecule all of us have, and it may just be the key to a healthy and long life. Back with more of my conversation with Dr. Jim Gutman, Senior Medical Consultant at Immunotech, Inc., right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. When you look at the sky... Ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Dr. Jim Gutman is with us, former professor at McGill University Medical School, 
and now the senior medical consultant at Immunotech uh, Inc. And we are talking glutathione. Let me spell that uh, for you. G-L-U-T-A-T-H-I-O-N-E. Glutathione. G-L-U-T-A-T-H-I-O-N-E. All right, so this simple molecule um, uh, produced virtually by in every cell in the human body, uh, perhaps in all animals, in the animal kingdom, mammals and otherwise, and uh, it's a, uh, uh, an immune booster, an antioxidant, a detoxifier. Uh, and again, the, uh, the levels that, that are produced, uh, how, again, how are these regulated? You're saying that it's, they're always, all things being equal, your body's going to produce as much glutathione as you need. Oh, well, it, uh, it, all things being equal, your body is going to try to produce as much glutathione as it needs. This is the issue here, Richard. It, it's trying, but it can't. Well, for us to maintain optimal glutathione levels is very, very difficult. See, every time you get stressed, every time you catch a cold, um, uh, your glutathione levels drop. If I were to chase you around the building a couple times, your glutathione levels would drop. Exposure to pollution and cigarette smoke and drugs, and um, there are so many things that are causing a heavy taxation on your glutathione. Uh, hardly anybody's got unoptimal glutathione level anymore. This is very, very difficult to maintain, and it, it's one of the reasons why so many people are under the weather. Because in order to maintain a high glutathione level, you have to have access to food stuff that you and I just aren't going to be able to go to the market and pick up. It's very hard to get the precursors or building blocks to make glutathione. And how long have we known about it? Uh, when, when was it first discovered, or more importantly, its role in maintaining, in, in ta- in maintaining human health? When was it first discovered? Well, I mean, you have to go back to the 19th century. I think it was something around 1888 um, where uh, it was discovered, and then subsequent research um, uh, or way back when it was the aristocrats that were doing the science. They weren't really professional scientists. They had clubs and, and, uh, were just, uh, wanted to impress each other with, uh, new discoveries. And, um, it was, it was discovered that this glutathione seemed to appear everywhere in life. So the assumption was made that it was critical to life. And this was a very good assumption, but it took decades before we understood its real role. We really only started to understand it in the late 60s and the the 70s. And it wasn't until the late 70s where we appreciated the fact that without glutathione, your immune system and your detoxification system would just crash. And you would fall prey to your environment literally in hours if you did not have glutathione on board. I mean, we wouldn't survive. Now, uh, if memory serves, there is a connection uh, between uh, the, the discovery of glutathione's role in, in health and was it the co-discovery of the AIDS virus, the co-discoverer of the AIDS virus? There is a link there. Um, 
The co-discoverer of uh, the AIDS virus is uh, Dr. Luc Montagnier, for which he received the Nobel Prize in 2008. Uh, he is not the discoverer of, of uh, glutathione by any means, but um, here's, here's the link. We knew probably 30 years ago that AIDS patients, by definition, were going to be glutathione deficient. Okay, so what do you do with that? I mean, look at it a little bit closer. AIDS patients were glutathione, low in glutathione, um, even to a much higher degree in the cells that specifically went wrong, something called uh, a CD4 lymphocyte. It's a certain type of white blood cell. So you've got this understanding that AIDS patients are missing, missing glutathione, and they're missing it in the white blood cells that aren't functioning. So what do you do? Go ahead and start to do some experimentation to raise glutathione levels in AIDS patients. And we knew that the lower the glutathione levels in an AIDS patient, the less time that person would have on this good earth. The higher the glutathione levels, the less opportunistic infections, and the healthier that individual will be. So we started getting uh, research money from the Canadian uh, government through what's called the HIV Trials Network um, way back, uh, almost 40 years ago, uh, where we were raising glutathione levels in, in AIDS patients, and uh, the results were, were spectacular enough that uh, when we presented them at uh, conferences, uh, Luc Montagne, uh, co-discoverer of the AIDS virus, uh, picked up on this and, and uh, 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 ended up writing uh, or, or producing a book on uh, AIDS and cancer, and it was a whole chapter uh, just on this substance called the Munical, uh, which is a, a precursor for, for, for glutathione. It, it's, it's that important. Um, it, one of the communities that it, you're in contact with that really understands glutathione um, is, is the gay community. I mean, look what makes up the majority of the gay community. Uh, younger, uh, university-educated people uh, who are highly networked and uh, online, and glutathione is, is a word that is well understood because of its relationship to the immune system and its ability to help you fend off viruses. And you mentioned over 100,000 uh, papers written to date. Yes. Uh, are, would, would, are included in that, would there be peer re, are peer-reviewed articles uh, being written about glutathione as well? Would we read about glutathione in, in the New England Journal of Medicine or Lancet, etc.? Uh, Richard, it's the first time we talked, but I'm quite impressed uh, with that level of question. Um, these are all um, articles that appear on a website called PubMed, P-U-B-M-E-D dot gov. And this is the largest repository of established journal, um, scientific and medical journals in the world. Uh, it used to be restricted to just scientists and, and the government, um, but a number of years ago, um, it was opened up to the public. So the public has access to all of these peer-reviewed, highly regarded uh, journals. And for anybody doing research, this really is a site that counts because the stuff you're going to get is credible. It's, it's as you mentioned, in, in high-level journals, uh, peer-reviewed, uh, which means other people have uh, uh, screened uh, these articles to make sure that they're valid and um, they're not just made up and uh, they're legitimate, uh, coming from legitimate institutions. Um, 
I guess that's a long way of saying, yes, Richard, you're right. And what about epi- epidemiological uh, studies? Um, have, have, oh, have there yes, been, I mean, that's the gold standard, right, in terms of, of, of these types of studies. Well, the, the, the studies we consider gold standard are interventional studies where they're placebo uh, control, double-blinded, statistically relevant, and all of that exists, and all of that exists with the company that I work for. The epidemiological studies are the ones that study populations and describe um, what happens to these populations, and it was the epidemiological studies that going back um, into the 60s and 70s that really opened up our eyes. And what these studies showed us was that the older the individual the lower the glutathione level. Not only that, the sicker the individual across the board, the lower the glutathione levels were. So that was a jumping uh, point where uh, scientists would look into, well, uh, let's see what happens when we raise glutathione. Are we going to slow down the aging process? Are we going to make people healthier? And uh, in fact, if you look at anti-aging medicine, uh, one of the key molecules, one of the the key interest is this molecule glutathione just for that reason. So, uh, you know, it always gets tricky when we're trying to determine causation versus correlation. And you mentioned uh, with older people, we see uh, a low level of glutathione or with, with sick people, we see a low level of glutathione. So, you know, what is one, in, is one kind of lagging? Is it, is it that old that aging is caused by a lack of glutathione, or is um, glutathione? Um, hang on, if I, I think I've confused myself here with causation. No, and no. Correlation. In fact, your your question is 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 great. I mean, it's a great question. It's different. You see, it, when you're when you're sick, uh, you're burning up glutathione levels for different reasons. Um, that's a pretty generalized statement, but. Uh, for the most part, it's true. Whereas when you're aging, um, the the whole mechanics of of, uh, of of your cells and their physiology, they, they just ain't up to par anymore, and they can't pump out the glutathione the way they used to when they were younger. So what happens is the aging person lowers their glutathione levels and are much more likely to open up the door to disease processes. Disease processes we call diseases of aging. And what are diseases of aging? Well, the obvious ones are things like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, but a little less obvious are cardiovascular disease. And um, it's cancer. Cancer is uh, highly correlated uh, positively with the aging process. The older you get, the more likely you're going to get cancer. Certain cancers are cancers of aging, like prostate cancer. So there are links, but the causation is just slightly different. And because we have ep- epidemiological studies, we have peer-reviewed articles, I mean, how we always have to be careful when we're discussing uh, a th- a th- things on the air of a medical nature, but I mean, what sorts of claims can we make safely uh, about glutathione and disease prevention? I mean, can we say that it, that studies show it can prevent this or that? Well, I'm glad you framed it that way, because that's more of a legal question than a scientific question. If we were to keep to the science of glutathione, 
quite clearly and quite easily can we talk about the correlation between good glutathione levels and good health. Good glutathione levels and a better aging process. Good glutathione levels and more efficient detoxification. I mean, all that's there. All that's quite clear. What we can't do is link this to a commercial institution. For example, you can't be promoting something that raises glutathione unless it has a drug status. You can't make these claims. So I guess it fits very, very well in in um, the context of your program um, uh, being called uh, the conspiracy program because um, it, 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 it really is um, an issue whereby medical claims cannot be made about any natural substance unless that natural substance is defined and registered as a drug. Isn't that interesting? You can run with that, I'll bet. Absolutely. Uh, so w- when we're talking about the, the molecule that exists in the body, that is produced in the human body, we can, we can say studies have shown high level, there is a correlation between high, high levels of glutathione and um, optimal health. Uh, but once we're talking about a particular product that will boost a gl- glutathione levels, then you can't make those claims. Is that it in a, in a nutshell? Exactly, exactly. However, I mean, the, the, the company that I consult to um, is, uh, is very forward. Um, and they've been doing this for 40 years. In fact, they, they're responsible for the vast majority of modern research in, in glutathione. And uh, what they do, and the Canadian government is actually uh, pretty cool about this. In fact, the, the head of the USA, um, they've allowed a category in between a drug and a food. See, until recently, you were either a food or you were a drug, and they've opened up this category in between uh, that we call a, a natural health product. And in order to make a statement, you have to send to the Canadian government, to Ottawa, piles and piles of papers, research papers, and they have to be done well to apply to make a statement, a medical statement or a medical claim about your product. So this company that uh, that um, I consult to, Immunitech, that makes Immunical, it has been given the right by the Canadian government to talk about the fact that Immunical, by raising glutathione, can improve the immune system, or that Immunical, by raising glutathione, can imp- improve your muscular performance. But it's an arduous task. Um, but it still beats uh, it still beats the Americans. All right, we'll come back and uh, talk about uh, uh, other sources of uh, glutathione. Why can't you just eat the stuff? I've seen it in health uh, stores. In fact, I saw uh, some today down on the Danforth. We'll get back to uh, my conversation with Dr. Jim Gutman as we discuss this miracle molecule right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. 
If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now. 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. It's a relatively simple molecule found in, um, well, most sentient beings as far as we know. Uh, and it seems to hold the key to optimal health. It's um, it been described as the master oxidant, the maestro of detoxification, uh, and uh, just uh, the mother of immune boosters. It's called glutathione. And Dr. Jimmy Gutman is with us, former professor at McGill University Medical School, uh, trained in um, emergency medicine, and now currently the senior medical consultant at Immunitech, Inc., and uh, I was asking you before, I've seen uh, glutathione available uh, in health food stores. So uh, can, you, can you boost your glutathione levels simply by ingesting it, eating it? Well, wouldn't that be nice? Um, no, absolutely you, you can't. Human beings, if they eat glutathione, the glutathione becomes rapidly broken down uh, in your digestive system and, uh, and you pass it. Uh, you it's a very, very expensive <laughs> habit because it, it ain't doing anything. It's kind of like the analogy would be if your son or daughter isn't doing well in high school, oh, you can expect to feed them brains and see their marks go up. You, you've got to give them what's good for their brains, what the nourishment, uh, the, the, the nutrition that your brain needs. Uh, glutathione in human beings, it's the same way. You need to give yourselves the building blocks or uh, what we call precursors for your cells to make their own glutathione. And um, this is tricky. Um, this is tricky to find the, the uh, adequate amounts of glutathione precursors in our uh, 2016 um, food stuff. I mean, we can go to Kensington Market, and uh, let me ask you, you, did you think that the, the potato that you picked up at the market um, uh, this weekend, is at all similar to the potato that your mom put on your plate when you were a kid? Forget about it. No, you might as well eat cardboard. <laughs> almost, almost. I mean, we're still getting things out of our foods, but the, the, the food industry and agricultural uh, industry um, uh, is uh, more concerned with uh, volume, size, uh, good looks, um, uh, things that don't perish uh, during transport. And nutrition, unfortunately, has kind of fallen by the wayside. So all of these great glutathione precursors that we had access to, or better still, your grandma had access to, uh, we can't get anymore. We can't get it easily. All right. Uh, are you good to take a call or two? Hey, sure. All right. Let's uh, say hi to Phil, who's in St. Catharines uh, this evening. Uh, Phil, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. You're on the line with Dr. Jim Gutman. Go ahead. Right. Okay. One question. Uh, is one wasting one's money? If one buys uh, the following two supplements, uh, NAC, I think the C, the third letter in that acronym, represents uh, cysteine, alpha-lipoic acid, and uh, the third would be uh, whey protein powders. Uh, does that help enhance one's glutathione levels? Well, you know, like every good scientist, the answer always is 
It depends. Um, the, the first thing you mentioned was NAC, which is N-acetylcysteine. N-acetylcysteine um, is an absolutely fantastic drug. Uh, when I'm in an emergency situation and I've got somebody that comes in and fulminates hepatic and in full liver failure, um, or they've taken something like an acetaminophen overdose, uh, Tylenol overdose, which, by the way, is, is, is <laughs> quite a good way to kill yourself. Um, the way we save these people's lives is by giving them N-acetylcysteine, NAC. Now, the, the problem with therapeutic levels of NAC is that inevitably it makes a patient feel ill. When I give an NAC in an emergency room, uh, you can be guaranteed that I'm going to have a patient that's throwing up on the floor and having cramps and is quite miserable. Um, you can find NAC um, in health food stores at low doses. And in that situation, it's not sold as a drug. But the problem with the NAC, there's two problems. One, if you're really getting good doses, doses that are sufficient to raise your glutathione, there's a real spectrum of side effects, uh, mostly gastro, gastrointestinal and, and mostly nausea and stomach-related stuff. Uh, but the other problem with NAC is that it has a very short half-life. It only hangs around for two or four hours. So if you really want to get your glutathione levels up, you've got to take the NEC three, four, five times a day. And if you felt sick the first time, well, you're going to feel, feel four times as sick the fourth time you take it. But in an emergency situation, in a hospital situation, it is just a marvelous, life-saving drug. Um, but you see, in a situation like that, I'd rather have a sick patient than a dead patient. So the trade-off is worth it. But alpha-lipoic acid is a, an interesting uh, supplement. It's a, it's a very nice antioxidant. And, and what it does, it doesn't really raise glutathione levels, but it, it helps recycle some of the glutathione by unloading some of the work that the glutathione needs to do when it's acting as an antioxidant. So the alpha-lipoic acid is a very good uh, antioxidant, and it, it's kind of like helping glutathione out so that the glutathione doesn't get worn out and thrown out um, of your body. So alpha-lipoic acid is, is uh, it's, it's nice, but it, it doesn't actually raise the glutathione as much as it spares the glutathione. And I think the last thing you, you mentioned was whey protein. Well, that, that really depends. If you have a whey protein that is derived properly from milk, whereby you can maintain the integrity of those proteins. These proteins are very, very fragile. Um, they'll, they'll break down in heat. They'll break down in pressure. They'll break down if you agitate them too much with a mixer. Um, so you need to come up with a protein that's what called undenatured. It needs to be in the same form, the same physical three-dimensional shape as you see in nature, then that will act as a glutathione precursor. So in, other, oh, so in other words, you're not ingesting glutathione. You're ingesting the, the, the things that go into helping your body produce glutathione. Yes. The whey protein, remember we talked about cysteine, is a cysteine 
delivery vehicle if it's undenatured. The problem is that most whey is is uh, um, it just really a uh, side product of, of milk production. And when you make milk, you know, the stuff that's left over lying around is whey. Forty years ago, that used to be dumped into the field. It was considered a useless product. All right, Dr. Gutman, I've got to jump in here because we need to break away for a quick uh, timeout. When we come back, we'll uh, continue to discuss glutathione, how to optimize levels in your body. And um, again, what else can glutathione do uh, to stave off aging uh, and to, to boost immunity and detoxification? Back with more right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To get the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Dr. Jim Gutman stays with us as we're talking about this miracle molecule found in the human body and how to... uh, optimize its production in the human body to stave off uh, aging. It's a detoxifier, an immune booster, uh, and, uh, well, much, much more. And uh, let me give you a website as well, immunotech.com, I-M-M-U-N-O-T-E-C.com, and we'll link up to that on the website as well, uh, strangeplanet.ca, immunotech.com. All right, so... um, just let us know then, Dr. Gutman, the best way uh, to, to, to get these building blocks, these precursors to glutathione into our body. Well, in, in keeping with the spirit of the name of your program, um, I've, I've got to tell you, as much as it's easy to bash the pharmaceutical industry, that, that's those guys are really easy to make fun of. Um, I'm going to tell you that people in natural products, um, they're not necessarily angels either. When you throw money into the mix, you bring out the worst in people. And so I, in my old age, become quite cynical. Um, I'm cynical about the pharmaceutical industry. I'm cynical about the natural foods industry. I'm cynical about supplements. To me, the answer always lies in science. And even though science has its flaws and people will occasionally cheat, I, I think that the answers lie in science. So if you're going to take any product, whether it's a pharmaceutical or it's a natural product, or it's a food, make sure that the studies are there. I'll give you an example. The gentleman that called before 
talked about whey protein. And my answer was, it depends. It's a very, very difficult thing to get whey proteins um, to stay alive biologically to act as the glutathione precursor. Uh, most of the time, whey is made found after you make milk and it's been pasteurized and been killed. Um, so, But these whey companies are going to tell you regular way you'll go to the gym and buy a big bucket away you got to be a member of the gym for three months before you can even pick up that bucket and they'll 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 tell you that it raises glutathione and absolutely does not raise glutathione so if you're going to want to use something that raises glutathione you're going to want something that has been researched and studied and um, proven and patented and showing up in medical textbooks and pharmacological textbooks uh, so you can be comfortable that it does what it's supposed to do. So this uh, Immunical product that uh, you mentioned, Immunitech.com, um, this is, this is the, the great thing about this company is that um, they were a research company before they were a commercial entity. And um, if you were to pick up have you ever been to your doctor's office or your pharmacy, see that big blue book called CPS? It has uh, all of the drugs that a doctor can write, but sometimes there are natural products that show up in there, and they're written up the same way with indications, contraindications, the clinical pharmacology, and the Immunical is there. The Immunical, it says, glutathione precursor, and it, it shows you the studies so that if, you're going to spend your money, and it's it's not cheap. You want to make sure that you're spending your money well on something that is actually going to do good for your body. Now, whey proteins are fantastic. I, I love whey proteins; they're an excellent source of nutrition. Um, but they, the vast majority of them, are not going to bump up your glutathione levels. That's that's special. That's a special way of processing whey, uh, where you have that um, that characteristic. Now, uh, are there any side effects? I mean, if uh, if someone is allergic to, I don't know, uh, milk byproducts or anything like that, is there any anything in there that that uh, could cause any problems, digestive issues, anything like that? Yeah, that's 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 a very common problem um, because it's made from whey, uh, which is a type of protein from milk. A lot of people who have problems with milk or people who just don't like the idea of milk are going to avoid most whey products. Now, this Immunical is what we call a whey protein isolate, which means that we've gotten rid of all the fat and we've gotten rid of all the water and we've gotten rid of pretty much everything except the protein. So most people who say that they can't tolerate milk or they're allergic to milk, or are not in fact allergic, they're lactose intolerant. So we've gotten rid of the lactose. So even the most lactose intolerant person uh, will be able to tolerate a couple molecules of lactose that, that sneak into the product. Now, there are going to be some people who have a true milk protein allergy, and most of them are allergic to a, a, a milk protein called casein. Uh, we don't like casein. Uh, we try to eliminate the casein. Uh, we're after uh, proteins that have cysteine. I know it sounds a little bit technical, um, but ultimately uh, what you end up with is a protein that the vast majority of people tolerate very, very well. 
now you, again, former professor at McGill University Medical School. You worked in emergency medicine. Uh, if you had your way, uh, Dr. Gutman, would you put anyone, let's say they've just had surgery or they're going into surgery or, um, you know, let's say, for example, they're undergoing chemotherapy, radiation, which, of course, depletes the immune system. Would you put patients in a hospital, in hospitals on a glutathione regimen? <laughs> you continue to impress, Archer. Uh In fact, we've done those studies, and right now we're doing a whole series of studies uh, at McGill University, um, where McGill is is, uh, developing this very, very interesting concept called prehabilitation. Now, everybody knows what rehabilitation is. Rehabilitation is you take somebody after chemotherapy, you take somebody after surgery, and you try to make them stronger and get them the hell out of the hospital and, and home and hopefully back to work. Prehabilitation is just crazy simple concept. You go, why didn't I think of that? And that's to get the person in the best shape possible before they have their surgery or before they have the chemotherapy so that their recovery is going to be quicker. So in prehabilitation, as, as, uh, as being studied at McGill, uh, what, what, what's being done is that patients are put on an exercise program. They're getting psychological counseling. I mean, you know, geez, you're going to have chemotherapy or you're going to have open-heart surgery. That, you know, that's traumatic. And a nutritional intervention. And the nutritional intervention that they're using is Immunical. And we've already done um, a couple studies, and the people, after they have um, their, their, their episode, their intervention in the hospital, uh, in this case, mostly uh, surgery for cancer, they get out of the hospital quicker. They're healthier. Their strength is better. Their side effects, their complications are lower. It's so simple. It's so simple. Like, why didn't we think of that before? So... Uh, but for you, Richard, uh, this, this is going to be um, actually, uh, I, I, I really, really believe that this is going to change the way we practice medicine in the future. Well, it's, it's no it's secret that we better. don't have, it's no secret, Dr. Gutman, we don't have a health care system. We have a, a disease management <laughs> system. So, uh, I mean, what, I don't know if you can even even ballpark this, but if, for example, um, we were all have we all had sort of optimal glutathione levels. Everybody. Um, I mean, what what are the health cost savings with something like that? Oh, geez, I I have absolutely no idea how to, how to calculate that. That would be an impossibly high <laughs> uh, figure. Um, it, impossible to calculate. I mean, but it would be it would be huge. And um, just to, to give you some examples. Um, there are professional sports teams. There are high elite uh, athletic teams um, that take the Immunical, um, not only because it's going to improve their muscle function, um, but because it's going to improve their immune function. Now, think back to every Olympic Games that you can remember. There's always this big virus that breaks out in the athletic community before the Olympics. Now, one of the reasons is that they're living on top of each other and it's tight quarters and they're doing God knows what to each other. But another one of the reasons is that if you're working out 
very hard. If you're overtraining, you have a dip in your immune system, and you're more prone to catching the viral diseases, the common cold, the flu, uh, gastroenteritis, and on and on and on. So we We've got people on the Canadian Olympic team, the American Olympic team, the Polish Olympic team, the British Olympic team, the Kenyan Olympic team. Sure, they're taking it to perform better, but they're also taking it um, to keep um, uh, from breaking their training cycle by getting sick. Think, think of a hockey team, okay? So you've got 20 guys on the bench, and they're sick, let's say, six days out of the season with a cold or a gastroenteritis. Now, if you can cut that down by 50%, that's like hundreds and hundreds of more hours where you're not going to miss your key players. So I'm trying to translate it into a sports analogy, but if you look at the amount of time that we and the amount of money that we'd save from people losing time at work, uh, it's, it's, it's an enormously high number. All right. Well, um, people are going to be hearing about glutathione a lot more in the future, if you haven't heard about it already. And um, again, the website, immunotech.com, I-M-M-U-N-O-T-E-C, immunotech.com. Dr. Gutman, currently the senior medical consultant at Immunotech and uh, former professor at McGill University Medical School. Thank you so much for this, Dr. Gutman. Thank you. You've, you've, you've really done your homework. I'm very impressed. Have a great evening. And... Uh, If I was in Toronto, I would tune in. All right. Well, you can get the app, the Conspiracy Show app. There you go. There's my little plug. (laughs) Let me give you another one. Strangeplanet.ca. That's your portal to the program. Register. It's free. It's quick. It's easy. And uh, say hi on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. As always, follow the truth. listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740.
From Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, taxi, camper, RV, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, or your cabin in the woods. We are coming to you from our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, right here in Toronto, the Liberty Village neighborhood of Toronto. Thanks uh, for listening to all of you uh, tuning in on AM 740, 96.7 FM, all of you listening in on one of our growing list of affiliates, uh, the podcast at iTunes, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn.com, TalkZone.com. Uh, of course, those of you catching the um, the HOA, the uh, live stream on YouTube. And once again, if you'd like to uh, join us inside the studio and catch a glimpse of uh, my guest and I, just go to the Twitter feed at Richard Serrett, at Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T. Go to the top of the feed and click on the link that says HOA. And you're in. All right. Uh, all of you, of course, listening on the uh, the app, the Conspiracy Show app, which is a very cool and powerful app. Uh, can do, it can do so many things, and that's a free download. Also, the Zoomer Radio app, which is also very cool. Uh, and, um, well, however you're listening, wherever you're listening, I bid you welcome. Uh, Randall Montgomery. Uh, has the analytical mind of a lawyer, and he has tackled the UFO ET issue in a book that's only about 35 years in the making. Uh, It's called Aliens and UFOs, Physical, Psychic, or Social Reality. And I'm just going to hold that up to the uh, webcam for those of you joining us on our HOA. And one of the things that will jump out at you immediately, I think, is the fact that the foreword was written by none other than Nick Pope. He is a true heavyweight in the uh, ufology uh, uh, field or arena. And um, we'll get into that conversation shortly. Uh, If you want to discover what's really going on at the uh, Bilderberg meetings held every year amidst incredible security and a virtual media blackout, then you'll want to attend... My next live event, it's called The Bilderbergs, featuring investigative journalist Daniel Estulin, author of The True Story of the Bilderbergs. He'll be coming to town Sunday, April the 17th. He'll be speaking, uh, sharing his uh, knowledge and years of uh, research. Also, he'll be presenting the Canadian theatrical premiere of his brand new documentary film, Bilderberg the Movie. Again, that's The Bilderbergs, Sunday, April 17th, University of Toronto. Order your tickets online at strangeplanet.ca on the live events page or in store at Conspiracy Culture, 1344 Bloor Street West, 416-916-1696 or the live events page at conspiracyculture.com. The Bilderberg, Sunday, April 17th. Okay, let's get into UFOs and aliens from a lawyer's perspective. Randall Montgomery, Ph.D., in his book, Aliens and UFOs, with a foreword by Nick Pope, uh, Randall applies psychology, psychiatry, sociology, and law to the topic of alien abductions and UFO sightings. He analyzes alleged abductions from various psychological perspectives, including Carl Jung and, um, and uh, Julian Jane and his bicameral mind, the recent experiments of Professor Persinger. Uh, hysterical neurosis, sleep paralysis, and concluding with Dr. Montgomery's own new diagnosis of UFO 
uh, UFO neurosis. He strongly criticizes the likes of uh, John Mack, David Jacobs, and Bud Hopkins' books, and the bias in what he calls the incompetent use of hypnosis as an investigative tool. He notes the similarities between reported contacts with space aliens and with angels, and he summarizes a dozen of the best quality UFO sightings and surveys, the aviation history of a Nazi, Canadian, and U.S. flying saucers, and analyzes the sudden and bizarre cancellation and destruction of the Avro Arrow C-105 interceptor program in the cover-up context. Uh, it's a, uh, a book, as I say, 35 years in the making, and it's a, a great pleasure to welcome Randall Montgomery to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, Randall? Thanks, Richard. It's great to be in the nerve center of strangeplanet.ca. <laughs> well, you know, I don't allow a lot of people into the studio, so uh, you're, oh. uh, <laughs> so you're, uh, you're quite welcome. Thank you for coming in. Now, um, it's interesting, uh, as Nick, po- Nick Pope points out in his foreword, you know, so much of the literature in UFOs out there uh, really borders on sort of – it's very new agey. It's, a, it's become a pseudo-religion. And here you are with this legal analytical mind approaching the subject. Not a lot of lawyers that are writing about ufology. What possessed you as a lawyer? Well, actually, um, I'm also a sociologist, and I was doing my Ph.D. in sociology when I first got into this back in 1979. So I'm, I'm looking at it not just from a legal perspective, but from a sociological perspective. And I also have a degree in psychology, and I worked at two mental institutions. So I'm also looking at it from a psychological perspective. But you're not a debunker, are you? I wouldn't oh, call you a debunker. <laughs> a skeptic, a skeptic, but not a debunker. You see, when it when it comes to alien abductions, I I just don't believe they exist, and I think this is a real shame for the people who are suffering because there are a lot of people out there who are traumatized, and they've been led to believe that they have been abducted by space aliens. Right. And you mentioned the three authors in particular, the the uh, usual suspects. <laughs> so in that in that sense, I'm a debunker. But when it comes to sightings of strange craft that can't be explained. I'm I'm um, I'm with Nick Pope. Let's just put it that way. There, there's just there's been so many excellent sightings uh, over the years that just can't be explained. If I, if I can hold this up to the camera, this is an excellent book here. Is that the proper place to yes, hold it? Yes. Strange uh, skies. J- yeah. Jerome Clark is a, is a well-known ufologist, and I really hope people would buy this book because it's just packed full of. Detailed sightings by military pilots and commercial pilots with thousands of hours and, and other very credible witnesses of just amazing things. Well, and, and I, I think people like Richard Dolan, uh, he's done an exceptional job at uncovering uh, you know, government documents mm-hmm. that show that, that governments around the world, particularly in the United States, uh, they're concerned about you know, these incursions into airspace uh, you know, well-documented encounters uh, with with fighter pilots and 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 so forth. Uh, but somewhere along the line, we uh, you know, and the good people at MUFON who are still you know, they're interested in just you know, show me the facts, tell me what you saw. Yes. Somewhere along the lines, we we jumped, leapfrogged into uh, okay, we don't know what these things are, but now all of a sudden, uh, we're being told that they are. Uh, you know, we know exactly what star system they've come from. Uh, they're interacting with uh, with humans. 
They're here to save us from ourselves. They have the you know the the answers to cancer and global warming, and it well, has become- also the negative stuff where they're supposedly interbreeding with us and trying to take over, and that there are uh, human alien clones running around. It's very dark. Right. Where did it go off the rails, though? Uh, I think it started in 1961 with Fuller's book, The Interrupted Journey, with Betty and Barney Hill supposedly being abducted by aliens in a flying saucer. And well, I, their niece was just on the program. Um, um, is that right? Uh, yeah. I didn't realize that. But anyway, um, I think that's where it, it went off the rails. And I, I, I'm very opposed to this abduction stuff because it's detracted from the credibility of the disclosure movement. It's taken um, – it's made it very difficult for anyone to approach the topic from a scientific objective viewpoint because now as soon as you mention the topic, people roll their eyes unless they're you know in that camp of, of fanatical believers. So I think it's very hard to get governments to disclose the information they have about unidentified flying objects when so many people in ufology now are into this alien abduction thing. It makes us all look like quacks. Now, one of the things that you and Nick Pope share in, also share in common is your belief that one of the best documented cases of an actual UFO sighting would be the Rendlesham Forest incident, uh, which happened over Christmas 1980. So 35, 30, almost 30, well, going on 36 years ago. Now, for those not familiar with the, the Rendlesham Forest incident, just give us a thumbnail sketch of what happened at this joint RAF U.S. Air Force Base Bent waters uh, in the and, south and of Woodbridges. Yes, yeah. well, it was December twenty sixth. We call it Boxing Day for our American listeners. December twenty sixth, and some strange lights were sighted. I'm going to try and make this very brief. Yeah, and uh, some people went out there, some U.S. Air Force security officers, to see what it was. And one of them, named Sergeant Jim Peniston, actually touched the object and he made drawings of it. And it was uh, kind of a triangular-shaped thing that had kind of a mini pyramid on top. It was about three meters long, two meters wide, about two, two, two meters tall. And it, it, it rose up and took off. And uh, this was uh, also witnessed by uh, the other guys that were with them. And they all wrote reports within a week to Lieutenant Halt, Lieutenant Colonel Halt, so it was pretty well documented. We have the sketches. We've got the official reports made to the U.S. Air Force by their security people within eight days. So it's it's. I think it's it's a really very very interesting case. And I get very upset when people call it Britain's Roswell because Roswell was just a balloon. There was nothing unusual at Roswell. So to call this Rendlesham case, which was very well documented, Britain's Roswell is, is you know, it's kind of reversing things. Interesting. Um, so you actually would put Rendlesham above Roswell in terms of— uh, I would put Roswell in the toilet. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I mean, there's just—show there's, me one square centimeter of an alien spacecraft from Roswell. I mean, people have been researching this for 68, 69 years. There's nothing there. It's, it's very well—here's a book— by Carl Flock, who was a former CIA agent, and he was an assistant deputy secretary of defense for the U.S. government. If anybody can write a book, it's him. And he ended up reversing his earlier opinions and concluding it really was just a Project Mogul balloon. And it was ultra top secret. It was uh, 1A, because at the time, it was measuring Russian, Soviet 
mili- uh, nuclear tests. And that's why it was uh, originally kind of covered up. Uh, the weather balloon story was a cover-up. What about – well, we're coming up on a break here. So we'll, um, we'll pick up on this on the other side and talk a little bit more about, about Roswell and, and um, you know, why would we necessarily dismiss reports from someone like Jesse Marcel Sr. who was, you know, one of the top investigators at the uh, Roswell Army Airfield. And um, we'll talk Roswell. We'll talk a little bit more about Rendlesham and uh, some pretty provocative statements coming from Randall Montgomery who uh, – has very little time for Roswell, claims that Rendlesham Forest is a, uh, a far better documented uh, UFO sighting, and uh, doesn't have much time for the likes of, well, they are considered luminaries in some quarters, the likes of John Mack and David Jacobs and Bud Hopkins. We'll get into all of that and more as we discuss aliens and UFOs, physical, psychic, or social reality. Randall Montgomery, PhD, my guest, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. All right, welcome back. Randall Montgomery is uh, with us, and the book is Aliens and UFOs, Physical, Psychic, or Social Reality. And uh, this is a book that's really 35 years in the making. The second edition uh, is now available. Randall, how do people get a, a copy of the book? Uh, just go to www.booklocker.com slash 5920. So just booklocker.com slash 5920. And here in Toronto, there are still some hard copies of the first edition available at the Conspiracy Culture Bookstore. This, uh, how, how is this going over? I hate the word community in terms of, you know, the UFO community, but, and, and it's, a, it's a very, you know, disparate group. You've got uh, all sorts of uh, shapes and sizes of people with, who approach the topic differently. Yes. But when, you, when you're going after people like, well, not going after them, but you, you're, you take umbrage with the likes of John Mack, the late John Mack, and Bud Hopkins, the late Bud Hopkins, and Dr. David Jacobs, and the whole alien abduction uh, phenomenon. How is this? I mean, are people being hostile to you? I, I haven't had any feedback, so I don't know. I'm expecting that, but uh, nobody's emailed me or contacted me to say uh, yay or nay. Right. But I'm guessing, though, that, that um, the people at MUFON must love you because I sense their frustration with a large sector of this UFO community that, that, that have moved it into this sort of new age kind of religious yes. cult. Uh, and you're saying, hey, wait a minute, we have, to, we have to pull it back. And I know the people yes. at MUFON really want to pull it back. Well, maybe I'll rejoin. I actually was a MUFON member back in 79 and 80 when I started this whole thing. 
Okay. We were talking about Roswell. And, uh, you know, you, you, again, were taking exception to people referring to Rendlesham Forest UFO incident as Britain's Roswell. You're yeah. saying forget Roswell. Yes. And you're saying... Far that, too much time spent on Roswell. There's, there's so many better cases to investigate. All right. Now, it's I just trying to revive a, a dead horse. <laughs> well, I, I mentioned uh, Jesse Marcel Sr., who... who um, you know, from the Army uh, air, airfield at Roswell, brought yeah. home yes. uh, a, a box uh, of artifacts from the debris yes. field yes. near Corona. And his son, Jesse Marcel Sr., or Jr., rather, mm-hmm. the late Jesse Marcel mm-hmm. Jr., recounts how this was all laid out yes. on the kitchen floor yes. on their home. Yes. And he remembers, first of all, he talked about an I-beam, seeing an I-beam mm-hmm. with a strange mm-hmm. hieroglyph on it. But he also talked about this strange material. It was like a memory material, like a like a like a uh, a tin foil. Yeah. But the difference is, though, when you crumpled it up, yes, it would it would bounce back into its original shape. Now we're yes. talking sixty years well, ago. Yeah, nineteen forty-seven. That, Seventy years. That was ago. considered amazing. But look, I hope this shows up on the camera. We got the same thing nowadays, which was available probably to the uh, U.S. military back in 1947 for a, a 1A classification, the same as the Manhattan Project. This Project Mogul had the same ranking as the Manhattan Project. And I crunch it up, and voila, regains its shape. More or less, yeah. That's, I mean, that's just a, that's the, a bag of, like, uh, corn, crisp, chips or the corn chips or something. Uh, okay. So you're saying that that was available well, well, yeah. 70 years ago? Well, yes. I mean, if you read the material, um, it was balloon material. I mean, even Marcel's children back in the day when when Jesse Jr. was 11, he said there were three categories of debris, a thick foil-like metallic gray substance, a brittle brownish-black plastic-like material like Bakelite, and there were fragments of what appeared to be I-beams, which actually they were just balsa wood strips that were not actually an I-beam. That was later recounted. They're just rectangular shape. And here's what um, Brazel, the farmer who found this stuff, his 14-year-old daughter said, this is an affidavit from the U.S. Air Force study in 1993, which everyone should read. You just Google USAF Roswell report, and then you won't believe in Roswell anymore. The debris looked like pieces of a large balloon which had burst. The pieces were small, the largest I remember measuring about the same as the diameter of a basketball. Most of it was a kind of double-sided material, foil-like on one side and rubber-like on the other. Both sides were grayish silver in color, the foil more silvery than the rubber. Sticks, like kite sticks, were attached to some of the pieces with a whitish tape. The tape was about two or three inches wide and had flower-like designs on it. Now I ask you... Does that sound like something you want to try and travel across the universe with? <laughs> <laughs> no. However, uh, a number of witnesses, though, have maintained that they changed stories under duress, that uh, the, uh, the sheriff at the time uh, was under instructions to threaten families. It's, it's, all, it's all myth. Um, the U.S. Air Force study interviewed Lieutenant Colonel Cavett, who was still alive. Okay. And, and even all the pro-Roswell people say that he went out in the debris field with Jesse Marcel Sr. and Rancher Brazel to, to collect this stuff. And he says it was a reflective sort of material like aluminum and some thin bamboo-like sticks. Hmm. It's, a lot of it is just revisionist. And a lot of it is based on the testimony of Frank Kaufman. Years and decades later, who was just so full of baloney 
uh, it, there's pages and pages of that in Flock's book. He just nobody could believe believe him. And as a sociologist, it's it's interesting to trace how this myth arose. Right. Where did it Where did it start then? It started with two characters named Silas Newton and Leo Jabauer, who rented a lecture hall and charged money to give people the story of a crash flying saucer with with alien corpses back well, in 1950. Well, their name. Their name pops up in another UFO incident. That would be in New Mexico, I believe, a year later, the Aztec UFO yes, incident, yes. which we discussed recently on the program. They all got kind of conflated together, these stories, over the years. So first you had Newton and, and so-called Dr. G, his real name was Leo Jabbar, who were con artists. One of them was actually, or maybe both of them were actually... Um, uh, arrested in 1952 for trying to sell a $4 piece of war surplus electronic equipment as an $800,000 oil finder device. So they've got no credibility. And then Frank Scully wrote his book Behind the Flying Saucers in 1950. And then a guy named Morris Jessup in 1955 wrote a book called The Case for the UFO. And then a college professor named Robert Carr in 1974 rented a lecture hall and kind of revived the whole story. And this kind of fooled serious ufologists into thinking, oh, this is, this is some old dead story because really there was nothing much about it uh, from about 1950 to about 1978. They started going down to Roswell and interviewing people. And that's when the whole thing kind of flared up again. Uh, you know, the, some of the big names like Leon Stringfield and Stanton Friedman. And then a, a book came out in 1980 by William Moore and Charles Perlitz, the Roswell incident. Right. So the whole thing kind of flared up after many years of it being a, a non-story. And, and so the, the myth evolved. And I, I just, it's very frustrating because there are a lot of more interesting and more modern incidents that the, the time and effort could be spent on investigating. Let me ask you about another very well-documented UFO incident. Uh, it's been described as one of the best documented in terms of government documentation, uh, and that would be Canada's own Shag Harbor, 1967. How do you feel about the Shag Harbor UFO incident? Uh, that's uh, pretty convincing to me. And that's for people who aren't really into the topic. That's a USO, not a, as well as a UFO, uh, underwater submersible object, unidentified uh, submersible object. That it's UFOs have been seen going into the, the water. So I think that's that was uh, you know to the extent that the the evidence is there, it's pretty good. And one kind of tiny link I kind of thought of uh, that I mentioned in my book is there was this kind of yellow foam floating around. Yes. The waters of, of, of Nova Scotia off the coast, whereas in Roswell, uh, one of the witnesses thought there was some yellow fog on the ground one night. So I thought there might be there might be something to that. All right, not Roswell, Randlesham. Randlesham. Okay. Randlesham. Now, um, I want to I want to go back to Randlesham for a moment because I'm wondering what you think about Jim Peniston's testimony about receiving this binary download uh, is you're shaking your head is I just that where, don't the, is that where, the, no, sh- where I, he jumped the shark I just, tank <laughs> yeah. it could be I, I was just researching that just before I came down actually and um, I'm like Nick Pope and Nick Pope has written an excellent book about Randlesham uh, Encounter in Randlesham Forest and really everybody should, should read this it's, it's quite good and he doesn't know what to make of it either um, who knows 
I mean, when you see what it, what binary code was translated into, it kind of looks like a new age tourist list. Like here's all the hot spots we'll go and visit. You know, the pyramids and Sedona and stuff. So it, who knows? But you see, for me, even if you put that aside and forget about it, it's still a pretty convincing case. Right, right. And so you think the Aztec UFO incident and Roswell, uh, are they being used perhaps by uh, some, I don't know, shadowy group in order to further discredit the UFO No, I, I don't think or? so. It's, it's, it's become an industry, and even the town of Roswell has an annual sure. festival. It's become a big tourist thing. And it's, it's become a, a meme in our society. It's, it, the myth, you, you repeat a story enough times and people believe it's true. But for the detractors, they'll say, well, look at Roswell. So it it has been in some quarters effective in sort of well, it's kind of tainted Rendlesham yes. and and the good cases like the Shag Harbor. You know, people throw everything into one bucket. People who aren't into UFOs. So if if they hear crazy stories about abductions and and a, a mogul balloon crash at Roswell, uh, which is supposedly an alien flying saucer, when you can see photos of the wreckage, uh, maybe um, Albert could show the the three photos of the balloon wreckage in General Ramy's office. I mean, it's obviously a balloon, and and then to say, oh well, they switched the photos and they switched the wreckage. I mean. You know, it just it kind of taints things. Like it's, it's. I think it's a shame that, as you say, we've kind of gone off the rails at some point. What do you mean by UFO neurosis? Well, uh, I think there's two types. There's uh, cases where people have had their brains scrambled, to to put it bluntly, by contact with strong electrical forces, getting hit by lightning, touching a Kugelblitz, that's floating ball lightning. Uh, perhaps earth lights. Paul Devereaux has speculated there are things called earth lights. Perhaps a close encounter with an alien flying saucer. Perhaps electrical field. They touch it. It affects their mind. It's you know a strong electrical field. That's one type of UFO neurosis. The other type applies to people who think they've been abducted. <clears throat> and the reason I've come up with this is because. John Mack, and for people who aren't into it, he was a psychiatrist and head of psychiatry at Harvard for a while. And he, he, I think he had Stockholm Syndrome. He actually believed literally the stories of his patients that they were abducted by aliens. Um, and so he said, oh, well, this, this, is, this is not mental disorder. This is not mental illness. This is real. I've discovered something amazing. And he, he wrote a book called Abductions and made lots and lots of money. And so I'm, I'm saying, well, let's look at this from a psychological viewpoint, and if the existing diagnoses don't fit, let's call it UFO neurosis. But the more I, I study uh, psychology, the more I think the people that, that he's dealt with and the other people actually could fit into a hysterical neurosis, especially what's called dissociative disorder. So it may or may not be necessary to come up with a new diagnosis. But if you believe him and accept other people who say that these people don't fit the established categories of mental patients, there's something weird going on here, but they're not crazy, I say let's have a new diagnosis for them called it UFO encounter neurosis, to be more precise. Is it – do you think there is any credence to the idea that the abduction – a phenomena is has in some instances been created as a cover, sort of an intelligence cover story. 
Well, again, I have to give credit to uh, Professor Terry Matheson. He's retired now. He's a university. He was the University of Saskatchewan English professor who wrote this this superb book, Alien Abductions. I don't know whether I already showed it on the camera or not, but it's um, I've relied heavily on it for my book. I will say, once you read this book, you won't believe in abductions anymore. This is really an amazing book, and it's very, very readable. Um, so now I lost my train of thought. Well, that's, no, we, well, let's, let's, that's all right. We're, we're, we're covering a lot of here, but let's let's go back to again the abduction phenomena. So, I mean, do you think that 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 um, a certain percentage of these people are simply uh, making it up, or they are oh, fantasy? Oh, no, now I remember the point. He um, came up with this idea, and and there's evidence to support this that a lot of these people have been sexually abused, and the. The screen memory is the alien abduction. The actual trauma was sexual abuse. And so they've – and this fits with the dissociative disorder. Interesting. Okay, this isn't something that I'm just making up if you if you read about what, what's involved with dissociative disorders. Uh, people will hallucinate. They'll, false memories are created. So I think in a lot of cases – uh, these people are victims of sexual abuse, and they've created this uh, UFO alien abduction thing as a cover story. And for naive researchers to kind of uh, cultivate the abduction, alien abduction thing isn't really helping them. Fascinating. See what I mean? Yes, because yes, they're not getting to the core, the core problem because, behind. Because if you look the at the backgrounds of a lot of these so-called abductees, there is evidence of sexual abuse and trauma. That's fascinating. Well, um, maybe we'll circle back to the Betty and Barney Hill case then. Uh, with that in mind, very provocative. Randall Montgomery, Aliens and UFOs, Physical, Psychic, or Social Reality, with a foreword by Nick Pope, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now. 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Randall Montgomery, Ph.D., Aliens and UFOs, Physical, Psychic, or Social Reality. No sacred cows here. He has really gone after the likes of uh, Dr. John Mack, Bud Hopkins, Dr. David Jacobs, who are lionized, let's let's face it, in in certain quarters of the UFO community for their work in the alien abduction uh, phenomenon. And um, I was asking you about, in light of what you mentioned, that... that, um, uh, the people that are often uh, attached to an alien abduction encounter or a, a close encounter, there is, seems to be a commonality there, according to uh, research, and that is sexual abuse. So you're saying that subconsciously they have created this screen. Uh, so instead of you know talking about this horrible, unspeakable thing that happened to them, their mind has sort of filled in the blanks or created... Yes, especially if they've been egged on by those three uh, 
suspects. We'll call them under the usual hypno- suspects. And under hypnosis. Yes. Uh, you know, the, the people we're talking about uh, weren't experts in hypnosis. I mean, they, they were blundering around, and uh, they really shouldn't have been doing it, in my personal opinion. Right. Okay, you wanted to to read uh, an excerpt from your book. this is from my book. In the Omega Project, psychologist Kenneth Ring uh, found that abductees had, compared to a control group, more childhood trauma and stress, including abuse, physical, sexual, emotional neglect. Now, going back to the classic Betty and Barney Hill abduction of 1961 in Professor Matheson's book, He makes a convincing case that after seeing the light, which was actually the planet Jupiter, which we probably don't have time to get into, but it's what what they saw was the planet Jupiter, the hills were physically and sexually attacked by a group of men. For example, a reading of the original transcript shows that what the hills saw blocking the road were men, not aliens. And Barney was anticipating a robbery when he worried that he had little money and he was afraid that the fact that he didn't have much money on him would antagonize the assailants. On returning to their car after the so-called abduction into the alien flying saucer, Betty asked him, Do you believe in flying saucers now? And he replied, Don't be ridiculous. Of course I don't. Back home after the experience, he remembers feeling dirty. According to one source, eventually Barney Hill revealed that a quote-unquote sperm sample had been forcibly taken of him but he didn't want this embarrassing information put in The Interrupted Journey by Fuller, the original edition. Betty Hill claimed that a needle was inserted into her navel. Many other cases in the more recent literature by female abductees involved unwanted insertion of a penis or a tube into their vaginas with warnings to forget what had happened, and these sound like sexual abuse, especially in the case of younger females and possibly guilt-ridden, suppressed sexual fantasies by older females. With girls, in some cases, the event, so-called alien abduction, occurred after they wandered away from their families at picnics or recreation sites into nearby woods, which are a typical place for rapists to lurk. According to two of the Tajunga Canyon contactees, known as Jan and Emily, they were sleeping in their car at the side of a road when approached by aliens. Now, it turns out that Jan had been repeatedly sexually molested by her stepfather since she was age seven. Thus, I believe that sometimes the alleged abduction by aliens was a cover story for a sex attack made up by the confused and traumatized victims. So it's, it's not good for them to be kind of reinforcing this, this um, alien abduction thing, although I suppose maybe, maybe that is good for them just to leave it as an alien abduction thing if they're not traumatized by it, because some people aren't. Right. Right. All right. Let's take a, take a phone call here. Bud is in uh, Boston and apparently was a student of the late uh, John Mack. Uh, Bud, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Well, thank you, Richard. Uh, I enjoyed listening to your show. I was up late preparing for some meetings tomorrow, and I just happened to turn, turn it on just as uh, you began your interview with your guest. And uh, when I, I studied with Professor Mack, I, w- I was required in the program I was in to take a few clinical courses. I really was more of a researcher. And um, I did a one-year course in clinical psychodiagnosis, which was uh, taught by Dr. Mack and a colleague. And um, during that, we had clinical rounds, and uh, he actually brought in a couple of folks that claimed uh, alien abduction. And he, in one case, I remember we went through the whole thing of the uh, the screen memories and the sexual assault and so on. And then we went through it with another person. 
significantly harder to uh, therapeutically tease out that kind of an etiology or an un- underlying cause. And uh, Dr. Mack's remark was that, but you know, it's not whether or not objectively they experienced it, but when you treat them, you have to treat the patient with some degree of a sense that you believe that they experienced that, whether it was physical or whether it was created from um, a psychic trauma. And and that kind of made more sense to me. I know subsequent to that, you know, he, he never completely kind of ruled out the potential for a real alien abduction, uh, but oftentimes, you know, at least during, during the time I studied with him, uh, he he really said, "Look, you know, you've got to really sort out these things because uh, the majority of them you can get at it clinically and see that there was some kind of an underlying trauma and a screen memory." And I, I just didn't want to hear Dr. Mack's reputation kind of t- turned off in the wrong direction there by your guest because he really was very much a um, a clinical observer of things and. It certainly was tragic the way he died over in England. Absolutely. But so I guess what you're saying is at least inside the lecture hall, uh, he he didn't make claims that he did outside the uh, the lecture hall. Right. Because well, I think well, it's pretty how, clear yeah, that... Scientifically, how could you? Because right. you'd have to observe it. Well, I, know, but so, I think to be fair, yeah. uh, what uh, Randy Montgomery is saying is he's he's talking about the claims that were not necessarily made inside you know a university setting. I don't want to yeah, put well, words in your mouth, Randy, but it's in his in book. Some of those cases, the, the, in, in his book, if you, if you really read between the lines in the book, you, you'll see that it, he he really wrote it with what I thought was somewhat skeptical perspective. Frankly, mm-hmm. that was my just my opinion. All right, fair, fair comment. I don't, I don't think Randy ag- agrees, but we'll, uh, we can pick up on that point. I, I appreciate the call from Boston, but oh, thank you, you. Keep up the good work. Appreciate it. All right, we'll uh, delve further into aliens, UFOs, the abduction phenomena with Randy Montgomery. Stay with us. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To get the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Oh, this is going to cause ripples in the UFO community. I can assure you of that. Randy Montgomery is here. Randall Montgomery, Ph.D., Aliens and UFOs, Physical, Psychic, or Social Reality, with a foreword by none other than Nick Pope. And uh, he uh, dismisses uh, Roswell as a... um, Well, yes, Project Mogul Balloon, but just, uh, you know, basically mere fantasy. Uh, and the Aztec UFO incident, uh, which we've talked about on the program, uh, sort of much in the same vein. Uh, 
Uh, he does, however, I mean, he is not a debunker. He, he believes that there are very important UFO sightings, uh, credible UFO sightings. Chief among them would be Rendlesham, the UFO incident in uh, the south of England, uh, Woodbridge and, and, and Shag Harbor, 1967, here in Canada, off the coast of Nova Scotia, and probably others uh, yes. that, that we can discuss if time uh, permits. Uh, however, um, he certainly has very little time for the UFO alien abduction uh, phenomena, uh, nor does he have much time for uh, the uh, the research of Bud Hopkins, John Mack, and uh, Dr. David Jacobs. Now, you were mentioning uh, Alien Abduction, a book by Terry Matheson, and he actually is joining us on the line from Saskatoon. Terry, welcome. Oh. Great to have you with us. Yeah, uh, I wanted to uh, uh, congratulate you on your show. Um, Randy and I have been communicating. We've never met, but we've been communicating by email for, oh, about 15 years after my book came out. And um, I agree with pretty much everything Randy has said. Um, I just wanted to congratulate him on his, his, uh, on his work. All right, now... Here's something interesting that uh, that Randall, uh, you were telling me off the air, and, and um, uh, Terry, I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, uh, but it, you were talking about the John Mack book. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, Randall, and tell us what you were telling me off the air. When I was writing the book, I contacted the publishers, and they explicitly forbade me from quoting anything from John Mack's book, Abductions, and they also said they had clear instructions from his estate the surviving members of his family, that I was not to quote anything from the book. And copyright law does allow you to quote small segments for educational purposes, etc. Mm-hmm. But just to be sure, I contacted Bill Burns, who's well-known in the UFO community. He produced that TV series, and he's a U.S. lawyer, and he agreed with me. He said, well, that's that's nonsense. You should be able to quote from the book. But I just didn't want to risk a lawsuit or a legal action, so I had to paraphrase everything, spend hours paraphrasing. I couldn't even quote what Mac had written in, front of, in his own book. So what, what were they trying to hide? Uh, well, I was, I, when I wrote my book, Mac was still alive, and I, I wrote my publisher, which was, was Prometheus, and I was worried about this. And uh, in the States, uh, they have a much wider um, law concerning permissible usage. And um, I was assured by my publisher at Prometheus that anything that I had quoted from, from Mac or uh, Jacobs or, uh, you know, whoever, uh, was permissible because that was considered fair usage. So I, because I, I was worried about that. Yeah, well, I, I was just being more cautious. I didn't want to risk it. Well, but Mac was dead at the time he wrote your book, wasn't he? Yes, but the copyright would have gone to his estate. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and so, Randy, what do you th- why, why do you think they refused to give you permission to, to print direct quotes or direct excerpts from his book? Well, I don't know, but I'm surmising that it was because I was showing him up, as it were. I was yeah. saying, how can you as a psychiatrist not look more into the mental health aspects of these, these poor people you're supposed to be treating? They came to you for help because they were traumatized, and you just do a Stockholm Syndrome and, and buy into the literal truth of their stories. Mm-hmm. 
No, I, uh, th- that was what I felt. That uh, I tried to get permission to reprint uh, pictures from some of the abduction literature, and I was denied at every turn. Uh, with the Betty Andreessen case, I found a startling similarity and a very re- revealing similarity between the pictures that Betty Andreessen, who was a very well-known abductee or claimant uh, uh, abductee, uh, to popular science fiction films from the 1950s. And I wanted to reprint those uh, to show that what she was actually recovering were retrieved memories, uh, which she had probably forgotten. And the resemblances were absolutely startling. Um, and and I, I never received permission. Hmm. Terry, I really appreciate your call. Thank you so much for your input. Anything Thank else? Thank you very much, and hi, Randy. Good, hi. good to talk to you for once. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's, let's hold up Terry's book uh, once more, uh, if we could. And that's Terry Matheson, Alien Abductions, Creating a Modern Phenomenon. Uh, now, we were talking about uh, UFO neuroses. Uh, what it, what, I mean, what's the takeaway from, from this in terms of the, the, um, the UFO phenomenon? Let's leave aside the alien abduction phenomena for a moment. Uh, but I mean, what, is, what is the takeaway here? From a sociological perspective, well, they're not all clearly. You don't believe they're all fabrications or frauds. There are some legitimate ones here. So, what's the takeaway? I, I, it's so hard to simplify it down to 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 one thing, Richard. Um, I, I just I want people to be aware, uh, speaking as a sociologist now, of how powerful science fiction has been in our culture, going right back to the the eighteen nineties with Jules Verne. Our culture is very, very steeped in science fiction. So as actually Professor Matheson just mentioned when he called in, a lot of people uh, don't realize how much television, comic books, pulp magazines, radio shows, movies about aliens have affected them. So it's hard to distinguish for people what's, what's real and what they've picked up from Science fiction, etc. Now, because there are credible cases, why not write a book focusing on the credible cases rather than say, well, but let's look at the, the ones that are not credible. And so, I mean, you're, one might perceive you as a debunker, but you're not. But the perception is there because you're, you're writing a whole book that seems to be dedicated to sort of deconstructing the, the whole UFO phenomena. Why not write about the credible cases? Uh, credible cases of abduction or uh, oh, no, sightings? Of, of, of sightings. Oh, well, there's been lots of books. That's why I showed Strange Skies at the beginning of the show. I right. mean, that this, this is... This no, but is, for you personally, though. Well, I do summarize some of my favorite cases in my book. Right. The book covers many different things. It's not just about what we've mentioned Understood. in the show. And, and so I have summarized some of my favorites, like the Captain Coin incident of 1974 when the helicopter was interacted with the giant UFO. And that's, that, that was not only observed by the four military guys in the helicopter, but a passing car with, with two or three people in it saw the whole thing. So how can you say there's there's nothing there when you've got this kind of uh, evidence? Uh, how much credence do you give to the idea that virtually all of these UFO sightings, the credible ones included, 
Uh, what we're talking about here is simply, not simply, but is, can be boiled down to advanced military uh, aircraft. Excellent point. I'm glad we managed to fit that in. <laughs> I think that from about 1990 on, that's what you're seeing. Uh, you know, they used to say 10% of cases were unexplained. And now I think because of the advanced U.S. aircraft, it's, it's, it's like an uh, insignificant percentage. There's, there's so many amazing U.S. aircraft flying around since roughly 1990. The U.S. has had UFOs, I mean, flying saucers and drones since 1980. So uh, mostly what people are seeing now are, I think, the advanced U.S. aircraft. So I'm saying let's not waste our time rushing around, uh, you know, trying to check out every new sighting because the chances are it's, it can be explained prosaically or by advanced U.S. aircraft. Let's, let's focus on the earlier cases and try and build a science out of this. What about the Kenneth Arnold? Let's go back, uh, you know, to 1947, yeah. the Kenneth Arnold sighting, which is, uh, you know, happened uh, – before Roswell, yeah. before the Aztec. Yeah, that started the whole craze. And what's interesting about that is what he saw was not flying saucers. He saw flying crescents or boomerangs or, or hoe-shaped vehicles. Uh, they look like the Batarang, actually, if you're a Batman fan, the Batman <laughs> boomerang. And he described the motion as a saucer skipping over water. And yet after he said that, everybody started seeing flying saucers. So that shows you from sociological perspective how once the idea gets out there, even though he never saw a flying saucer, he saw something different. All of a sudden people started seeing them and then you got this Roswell thing and – Right. Flat on the bottom, dome on the top. That yeah. has become That's the iconic kind of image. Saw. Yeah, yeah. Later on people saw or claimed they saw things like that. But he was describing the motion, not the shape. Interesting. Interesting distinction. And uh, and what about the, the, the Arnold sighting itself? I mean, is it credible? Oh, who knows? I, I, I don't know. It's, people are going to debate that forever. What Very about, strange. I mean, I don't – surely the U.S. didn't have anything that advanced back then. That's what, why I think the earlier sightings up to about 1990 are like the golden era. And now uh, almost certainly anything you look at is, is going to be explained by uh, advanced U.S. aircraft. Give us another example of what you think is a credible UFO sighting. Well, there was that whole thing in 1990 over Belgium. And I have to point this out. In the first edition of my book, I got suckered by a photograph. I said, finally, we've got a really good photograph. And uh, since that edition came out, it turned out that was a fake. So I want to emphasize that to people in the second edition. I say, I'm really sorry that I, I, I said, now we've got this great photograph. It was a, a model based on what people had seen. Okay, but but the Belgian... But the incident itself, I mean, you had uh, fighters chasing these things around, you had them on radar, you had thousands of people watching, it went on for hours. And that, I don't think, could have been a secret U.S. plane, because why would you show it off like that? It's supposed to be secret. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, what about the uh, the Phoenix Lights? Well, there again, many, many witnesses, photographs, movies... Uh, the Air Force explanation that there was flares is just silly. Um, I think, I don't know. If I had to guess, I would say it's probably advanced U.S., given the, the location. You know, it's not, not far from Groom Lake, Nevada, et cetera, you know. Stephenville Lights? Oh, just while I think of something, um, there's been some speculation that the Rendlesham yeah. was an early F-117. And I, I double-checked that today in preparation, and the, the sighting was December 26, 1980. 
The first, very first prototype of the F-117 didn't fly until June 1981, six months later. And all the early flights were around Groom Lake. They sure, sure weren't in Britain. All right. And the, the, the craft aren't really that similar. If you look at the drawings of Penniston and a photo of the F-117, they're, they're not really similar. Aliens and UFOs, how do people get the book? Just go to www.booklocker.com slash 5920. 5920. All right. Randy, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. All right. My thanks to uh, Ian Robertson, Albert Finzel, Jonathan Franz. Back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.